how do you say goodbye? How do you say goodbye? Some of us have a chosen way of saying goodbye. Others of us, we just throw out whatever pops into our heads in the moment. I think in today's world, we often view goodbyes as something that's flippant because we assume that we're going to see the person again. Often this is the case, but there is times that come when we know that it's going to be a long time before we see them again, or, or it may be the very last time that we're going to see this person, that our goodbyes do tend to change. Our goodbyes become deeper and more important, more meaningful to us. In fact, there were several thousand English pastors who came to know this better than most in, the, in August of 1662. It was then following what is known as the Act of Conformity by the English government where pastors were required to submit and practice the forms of public prayers, administration of the sacraments, and other rites of the established Church of England following, the pastors were required to follow what they found in what is known as the Book of Common Prayer. But there was a large group, thousands of pastors, who, who had an issue of conscience with this book. These pastors, who were known as nonconformists, or more commonly known to us as the Puritans, instead of submitting to the government's imposition upon their gatherings, because they could not in good conscience, conscience affirm everything in the Book of Common Prayer, they chose to resign from their positions in these established churches. They chose to lose their livings, and many of them had to move away from where they had been faithful pastors. And one of the great blessings, the silver lining that came out of this time from this stand against the state, is now we have a, a collection of sermons from that day of what has commonly been called now the day of the great ejection. When pastors were ejected from their churches because they were unwilling to submit to the government's imposition upon them. These are a collection of final sermons of men who were standing upon God's Word alone at the loss of everything else in their life. Now what do you suppose their goodbyes to their churches sounded like? Well, let me read a couple. Here's how the Puritan William Beerman ended his sermon, his final sermon to his congregation on that day in August 1662. Thus you have heard what I have to say unto you by way of caution and counsel. Oh, that they may make such impressions on your hearts that they may be your continual practice in your lives and conversations. I shall now close with the words of St. Paul. From 2 Corinthians 13, 11, he quotes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. And the Lord grant that ye, both ye and I, when we come to that judgment seat of God, render up our account with joy and receive an immortal crown with Christ in heaven. Until which day I beseech the Almighty God to keep you and preserve you in his fear. Amen. This is how the Puritan Richard Baxter ended his final sermon in his church that day. Lastly, 
all your life be longing to die. It's quite a way to end. Let the work of your life be to learn to die. Consider what necessity to the safety and comfort of death. To consider frequently what assaults will be made upon dying men that you may every day fortify against it. To consider what graces and duties will be most needful and useful then that you may be most conversing with and exercising those graces and duties. He's saying, what is going to be the most important thing that you do? Do that. He that hath well learnt to die is no weak Christian. The strength of your grace lies in the exercise of these things. Faithfully practice them, and you will stand when others fall. You will have comfort when others cast away their comfort. You will die in peace when others die in horror. Friends, saying goodbye is a lot more important than we realize. In fact, we don't have to just look to some of these farewell sermons of these pastors who were ejected from their churches. We find this really throughout the Bible. In fact, in all of the epistles of the New Testament, we find all of them ending with very special goodbyes. It's what we traditionally called benedictions. In fact, every service we close with a benediction. And more times than not, it is a reading from a passage ending one of these epistles. What does the word benediction mean then? Well, benediction is a call for God's blessing, a call for God's blessing based upon who He is. That's an easy way to remember what a benediction is. It is a call for God to bless someone or someones because of who God Himself is. And so we find in the New Testament letters benediction that extend really an Old Testament tradition of the priest blessing on Israel by calling for God's protection, favor, grace, and peace. And so this morning we come to the benediction of Hebrews. We've spent really the last two years looking at this beautiful sermon letter that has laid out for us the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ in fulfilling all that has come before in Scripture. And now we come to the end in this glorious benediction. You may remember last week in Hebrews 13, 18, that the author said there, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, pray for us, in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. We saw last week that he asked for those to whom he was writing the letter to pray for him. And now what does he do in closing? He prays for them. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning in Hebrews 13, 20 through 25. If you have a Bible and you haven't already turned there, join me there in Hebrews 13, 20 through 25. If you're new to the Bible or don't have one of your own, you can always use the one there in the pew in front of you. And Hebrews 13 is found on page 949 in that Bible. If you're new to the Bible, once you get there, page 949, look for that big 13 and then scroll your finger down until you find the small number 20. And that's where I'll begin reading in just a moment. As always, friend, if you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible of your own, we do have some in the foyer that we would love to give you today as our gift to you. Well, friends, let's stand once more in honor of the reading of God's Word. Looking at these few final verses here. Let me read them all for us. 
Hear now the word of the Lord to us today from Hebrews 13, 20 through 25. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. For I have written to you briefly. You should, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Well, friends, I'm assuming for those of you who have been here before that these verses are not new to you. In fact, through the majority of our series through the book of Hebrews, we have used this benediction as the close of our service. And so I'm excited to finally get here, to finally look at this. We've read this together so many times. And it's good now for us to finally chew on it and see exactly what is this blessing that the author of this sermon letter is intending to give to these Hebrew Christians? And what does it mean for us? So there are three things I want us to see this morning from this passage. First, in verse 20, to look at the character of God. The character of God. Second, in verse 21, to see the will of God. And that's where I intend to spend most of our time. There on those first two verses, they're the meat of this benediction. Verse 20, the character of God. And verse 21, the will of God. And then finally, in our conclusion, looking at those last few verses in 22 through 25, consider the people of God. The people of God. You see, what we find here really in this, this passage, this closing portion of the book, is the whole of all of the truth that this letter has offered. It's really summarized here, and, and we'll see it as we work through it. And now we find the preacher turns toward God himself to plead with him to apply all that he has taught to their hearts and to their minds so that they now may be moved toward walking in the very will and desire of God himself. And that's my prayer for us this morning, is that we would look, that we'd see all that has been laid out in this book, summarizing these few verses, that we too may walk in God's will and holiness and obedience in our own lives. Well, let's jump into it then by looking at the first thing, that is the character of God there in verse 20. And the reason I think he goes here first is, is because of this simple reality that until we know who God is, we cannot rightly come to Him making a request for His blessing. Before He ever gets to the blessing portion, the desire of His heart for them, He wants them to be reminded of who it is that He is praying to. Because the reality is, again, that we cannot expect anything from God if we do not know who He is that we are praying to. And so as we look back at this verse, a simple question to you, do you know Him? Look there at verse 20. Now may the God of peace... He begins here by helping us understand who God Himself is. Friends, what we find here really is the wisdom and the generosity of God Himself. Do you realize this? That God is not bound to tell us who He is. God is not bound to reveal Himself to us. He could have created us and been far off. He could have created us and been an absolute mystery to us, but in His wisdom... And in His generosity, His tenderness, His compassion, 
He tells us who He is, and here we see just a portion of that. Starting in June, just to get you excited and ramped up like I am, starting in June on, on Sunday nights, we're going to be spending the rest of the year thinking just about this as we look in our Sunday evenings at the very attributes of God, of who God is. And we feel as the elders that this is going to be really beneficial in helping us pray more better, more and better. As we ex Thanks, babe, I appreciate that. Always count on a laugh from her. But we see here now just a small sliver of who God is in the beginning of this verse. We can respond rightly when we see Him. And so we see that He is the God of peace. Now, why do you think the author here decides to call Him the God of peace? He could have chose anything, couldn't he? The sovereign God, the God of all power, the God of all glory, of all majesty, the, the holy God, the Lord of hosts who commands the heavenly legions upon legions of armies of angelic beings. He chooses here the God of peace. Well, friends, this title here speaks of his disposition to his people. Particularly, it speaks to his disposition to people in general, underlying this, whether you realize it or not, as the God who is the judge. This word peace brings in it this idea of judgment, this idea of justice, whether you realize it or not. See, if you remember back in, in, in chapter 12, verse 23, he was called the God, the judge of all. But here we find his posture toward his particularly redeemed people. See, friends, the reality is that he cannot be a God of peace to those who do not know him. He cannot be a God of peace to those who are outside of Him. He cannot be a God of peace to those without Him. This is the way He viewed us as a God of judgment until we came under the blood of Christ. When sin came into the world, He was put at odds with humanity. Friends, the reality... and. And maybe if you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, this may be news to you. So listen up. Because of our sin, because of our rebellion, we are not at peace with God, naturally. We are alienated from God. We are broken off from God. In fact, Psalm 5, 5 says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Psalm 7, verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge, a God who expresses His wrath every day. This is something that often goes overlooked in modern-day Christianity, sad as it is. But friends, we must understand the reality here that is flowing under this title of God of, as God of peace that to those who are without Him, to those who do not know Him, to those who have not come under the blood of Jesus Christ, He is not a God of peace, but He is a God who is at odds. He is a God who will be just as their judge. And so how can He become a God of peace? How is it here that He is called a God of peace? Does it make it unrighteous and unholy on his part? Is he split? Does he have a dual personality as God? Well, as A.W. Pink has said, he beholds his people in the face of his anointed. 
He beholds His people in the face of His anointed. We find in Jesus the very pinnacle of how a God of righteous justice is also a God of gracious peace. And so the reason that He begins now by calling Him the God of peace is because this is who He has become to all of those who have come to understand the Jesus that this sermon in Hebrews holds out. That for all of those who see Jesus as better than anything else, as Jesus as the one who lived perfectly, who died sacrificially, and who rose triumphantly, all who see Him and turn to Him and follow Him. He is no longer a judge, but He is a God of peace. But pastor, how do we know that He is a God of peace? How can we know? Growing up in church, one of the pastors I had would always say, do you know that you know that you know? It's the same question here. How do we know that we know? How can we know that He is a God of peace truly for us? We see it in the very next section, the very next phrase. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. We find it here stated so clearly and it's been alluded to so many times in Hebrews. We've hinted at it over and over and over again. But here now is clearly laid out the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The rising of Jesus Christ from the dead. We find it is God who brought back Jesus from the dead. But this brings up an interesting question. Well, Pastor, isn't Jesus God? How is it that God brought Jesus back from the dead? Isn't Jesus Himself God? What does this mean? How, is this, how are we supposed to understand this? How does this mesh in our minds? We're, we're a Trinitarian church. We worship the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as God. What is going on here? Well, friends, we do find that it is God the Father who brought back Jesus from the dead. In fact, Galatians 1.1 begins this way. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead. But also we find that it is Jesus who rose, rose Himself from the dead, who brought Himself back from the dead. In fact, Jesus Himself says in John 10, 18, No one takes it from me, but I lay down my life of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father, that Jesus Himself will take His own life up. But also we find that it is the Spirit who brings Jesus back from the dead. As Romans 8.11 says, And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. And so the answer to your question of who is it that raised Jesus from the dead? Yes, it was God. It was the Father and the Son and the Spirit working together in perfect harmony, the Trinity at work to bring back Jesus the Son from the dead. So we find here a beautiful truth. Because it denotes that Jesus died to begin with. That Jesus died and was buried as our substitute. And friend, do you know that this morning? We want you to know that. We want you to believe that we plead with you to turn from your sin and turn to this Jesus who died for sin, who was crucified for sin, who was buried as the payment for our sin. But do you realize that if he had stayed dead, there would be no assurance 
that his sacrificial death was any good. That if he stayed dead, we would be left wondering, did it count? Was it good enough? Was there really, as we sing, power in the blood? And so we are reminded here, we are taught here, that in God bringing him back, we have been given proof that what the Lord Jesus has done and suffered for us worked in completing our redemption. As we sang in our new song this morning, it is finished. His resurrection shows that it is so. So we see here that it is this God of peace who brought again. Now that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? That's not one we hear anywhere else in the New Testament, that He brought again Jesus Christ from the dead. It doesn't say that Jesus Christ was resurrected. It doesn't say that, that he, he rose from the dead. No, it says that He was brought again. It gives this idea of being restored, of put back in its rightful place. And so we see, we are reminded, not just that Jesus died as our substitute, not just that He rose from the dead, but then when He rose from the dead, He was placed somewhere. He rose for a reason. This is what we find in the very ascension of Jesus Christ, that He rose and brought again to His rightful place, a King of glory, King of might. Jesus, by the divine power, was restored back to His rightful place. And this is, as it says here, our Lord Jesus, our King, our Master. Isn't it interesting how His name is reserved there for the very end? This is true in in the original Greek text that our Lord Jesus comes at the very end of the sentence. And in in the Greek writings, this, this denotes importance. That what happens there at the end is it's kind of this climax, this culmination of the whole verse. And so, so he builds up to this point. And he's like, our Lord Jesus was brought again. That it is our Lord Jesus who proves that God is a God of peace. But he is not just our Lord Jesus in whom we submit, but more he is our shepherd who leads us along to greener pastures and sweeter waters. Do you see that? Look back there. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Friend, is He your Lord Jesus? Is He yours? We sing this so often. Sinners in derision crowned Him, mocking thus the Savior's claim. Saints and angels crowd around Him, own His title, praise His name. Do you own His title? Do you take it up as your own? Is He your Lord Jesus? Then He becomes not just the King, the Lord, but the great shepherd. Now we see that great shepherd of the sheep who had laid down His life for them has taken up His forever position. Friend, have you ever wondered why the Bible makes such an emphasis on Jesus as the great shepherd. It comes up over and over again. Not, not, just, not just there in John 10 where Jesus talks about being the great shepherd. Not, not just in, in the other New Testament letters like, like in Peter where, where elders and are called to shepherd the flock because they're going to have to give an answer to the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. But we find in the Old Testament that this idea of shepherd comes up over and over and over again. We saw it in our public scripture reading from Ezekiel 34 today. Why does the Bible make such an emphasis then on Jesus being the great shepherd? 
the better shepherd, the true shepherd of the sheep. Well, friends, I believe it's because it encapsulates all of who he is. It is the penultimate title of who Jesus is. Well, think about it. Him being the great, great shepherd shows that he is the true prophet. As we read in Hebrews 1.1, that in these days God has spoken to us through the Son, that it is in Christ as a shepherd that he feeds his sheep by being the very Word made flesh. He is the true prophet. Jesus is the great shepherd because he is the true priest. You think about this in Hebrews 9, 12, that he laid down his life for the sheep, entering once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. The shepherd poured out his own blood in becoming the lamb that was slain. But it also shows that he is not just prophet, priest, but king. That's the great shepherd. As we read in Hebrews 7.25, all power is given to him to save to the uttermost all who are brought into his fold and committed to his care. This is our great shepherd. What does this mean for you, Christian, as a sheep? It means that we know whatever we need for protection, for sustenance, for healing will be imparted for us and to us in our time of need. As Isaiah 40, verse 11 says, He tends His flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in His arms and carries them close to His heart. He gently leads those that have young. This is our Savior. Christian, this is the one who loves you and gave Himself up for you, who came back from the dead and who now sits at the right hand of the Father on your behalf. He is not a king who holds you under His boots. But he is a king who shepherds you and holds you close to his heart. And now we must ask the question, though, how or why? How is it that God raised Jesus from the dead? How is it that he is a great shepherd to us? Or why exactly did God raise Jesus from the dead? And how does, why does it reveal him as a God of peace? And the answer is there at the end of verse 20 by the blood of the eternal covenant, or more strictly speaking, through the blood of the eternal covenant. Now, what is this eternal covenant? There's some debate, some discussion about what covenant is being spoken of here. But I think it's most clearly in this conversation about God and His relationship together as the Trinity and within the Father and the Son. It is a covenant that is spoken of here about Jesus and what He would do. A covenant from eternity past. Speaking of something that had already happened. This is the eternal covenant between the Father and the Son regarding the redemption of the church through the work of Christ on their behalf. It was established in eternity past and has effects on eternity future. We're reminded that all that came before were but types and shadows of this covenant of what would take place, of the relationship between the Father and the Son, as we've seen throughout this book. And now we find that it is through the blood of Jesus that this covenant was sealed, so that we might, as, as His people, receive the effects of it. Like the blood of the bulls secured atonement for the people of Israel, His death was the only way to eternal life for His sheep. 
It was His death and His blood that was poured out to appease the wrath of the Father. He stood as a, what we call propitiation. It means that His blood secured the payment that was necessary because of our rebellion. He did what He committed to do in eternity past and coming so that we may be saved to eternal life in the future forevermore. And this is exactly who they needed in their time and exactly who we need in our time. Do you feel that this morning? If you're here this morning and you're weary, you're struggling, you're discouraged, you're, or maybe you're doing great. I hope some of you are doing wonderful. A few smiles here and there. All of us, no matter where we are, who we are, in Christ we find a God who can bring peace to our hearts. Real peace. Not peace like we find in the world. Not peace like we find in our stuff that lasts for a few hours or a few days and then kind of falls off. But everlasting peace. In this passage, we are reminded of a Savior who would not just die in our place, but who would live to sustain us in our following of God. Don't you know how they needed this blessing? How they needed to be reminded of this God and this shepherd as they were living under such persecution for following Him? Don't you know that they struggled to turn back to the old ways because at least then they could be left alone by their family and their friends who hated them because they loved Jesus. And yet we are told here that this Jesus in whom they have trusted and turned to, He will keep them as their shepherd. And this God in whom they have trusted will be a God of peace. Friends, this is the God who blesses us. He is the only one as we sing every week, from whom all blessings flow. If Jesus is alive and the God who gives peace did it, then what should we expect? Well, this is what we find in the next verse. Look back at verse 21 as we see then the will of God. Maybe start back in verse 20 to give us kind of the flow of the sentence. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of his eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Let's stop there. Equip you with everything good that you may do his will. See, the aim of this benediction, as we've heard it week after week, I hope you sense this, the aim of the benediction is not simply to remind us who God is. This is good and this is right, and this is why I spent so much time there at the beginning, because it is good for us to know who God is. But the reality for us, and, and what, what so many of us have to wake up to, is that because of who God is, it should change who we are. It should move us in some direction. Following God doesn't mean we sit down. It means we actually have to follow Him. And so we see here that call for obedience. Equip you with everything good that you may do His will. This is not moralism. This is not legalism. It's not works-based salvation. It's the expectation of the Bible that you would do His will. You have to actually do something then to do His will. What is it? We find that knowing who God is should catapult us into 
are calling on Him and trusting in Him in obedience. It's a good place to ask again, what is the purpose of Hebrews? What is the purpose of this entire book? It is to equip the fearful saints to stand strong and march forward in their trust of Jesus Christ as the true and complete fulfillment of the old covenant system. And so his prayer is that God would bring about that which he has exhorted them towards. That God would bring about all of the things that he has given them that they may now walk into all of the things that he's laid out here in chapter 13. The prayer is that God would equip them meaning that He would enable them, that He would supply them, that He would establish them, that He would make them battle-ready. What does this teach us about ourselves? Well, friends, we know this more than we like to admit. It tells us that the will of God is a thing in which we, in our own thoughts, in our own feelings, in our own strength, are in no way fit, prepared, or able to fulfill. That, that the will of God... Obedience to God, walking in holiness, is something we can't do on our own. That it is impossible in our own strength. That we are weak and feeble. We need to be equipped. Whatever good things we may think we have in our hearts and our hands, apart from the fitting of God, are as nothing. We stand like David on the battlefield wearing Saul's armor. They do us no good in the end if we have not God if He is not equipping us and sustaining us and preparing us for the battles ahead of us. But what is prayed for here then is not absolute perfection, but it is a prayer that God would bring about a mind and a heart and a strength to do His will. Now what does He mean then by the will of God? Now, this is a huge question that we could really plow into when we'd be here for the rest of the day, thinking and talking about the will of God. But let me tell you a couple things it isn't, and then let me try to summarize it quickly. Because it's a phrase that gets thrown around so flippantly, okay? Number one, God's will is not something I feel like doing and can just do. Just because you feel like doing it and can do it doesn't mean it's God's will. There's a difference between doing God's will and doing something for God. I'll let you chew on that one later. God's will also doesn't mean something I want to do that God's Word says no to. So if God's Word prohibits something, but you feel like doing it, it doesn't suddenly mean that you've gotten some new revelation and will of God and that you now have permission to go and do it. So what is God's will? Well, let me read a couple of quotes that I think are really good summaries that come from someone who really sought to understand God's will, and that's George Mueller. George Mueller was, was, was a, an evangelist who really sought to trust God's will for his life, most notably opening any number, many numbers of, of orphanages that, that, that blessed over 10,000 children in their time. And not once did George Mueller ever ask for money for support, but constantly trusted for the, in the Lord. George Mueller, in his book that I can't recommend enough, called Answers to Prayer, gives six steps for knowing God's will. I'm just going to read the first and the last one. The first step to knowing God's will, this is what Mueller says. He says, I seek at the beginning to get my heart in such a state that it has no will of its own in regard to a given matter. What he's saying here is I, I seek the will of God in first, getting, my play, getting myself to a place where, where I don't care, I, I trust the Lord no matter what happens, that I don't have a preference in one way or another, and I'm just going to trust the Lord, whether it's what I want to do or not. 
He says nine-tenths of the trouble with people is just here. Nine-tenths of the difficulties are overcome when our hearts are ready to do the Lord's will, whatever it may be. When one is truly in this state, it is usually but a little way to the knowledge of what his will is. And then he closes out in the sixth way. He says, through prayer to God, the study of his word and reflection, I come to a deliberate judgment according to the best of my ability and knowledge. And if my mind is thus at peace and continue so after two or three more petitions, I proceed accordingly. In trivial matters and in transactions involving more important issues, I have found this method always effective. What was the method? Maybe you missed it. It's this. He prays, he reads God's word, and he trusts the Lord. And then he prays some more. And he steps forward. He closes by saying this. I never remember in all my Christian course a period now of 69 years and four months. He's writing this at 69 years old. That I ever sincerely and patiently sought to know the will of God by the teaching of the Holy Ghost through the instrumentality of the Word of God. But I have always been directed rightly. But if honesty of heart and uprightness before God were lacking... So if he's lacking honesty and uprightness before God, or if I did not patiently wait upon God for instruction, or if I preferred the counsel of my fellow men to the declarations of the word of the living God, I made great mistakes. To take that for what it's worth, maybe you can mull over, talk over lunch today, over dinner this week. How do we know the will of God? You can pray for one another in some of these big decisions that we have to make. Now putting us all together, what does it mean? that this prayer here is the prayer that God would equip His people with the God-given insight and knowledge so that they may see His will and clearly follow it. Know it clearly and then follow it and walk in obedience. What a prayer to pray. I, I, let me just ask you this, because, because this is a, an other people kind of prayer. Are we praying this for each other? Husbands and fathers... Are these the kind of prayers you're praying for your wife and your children? That they would know God's will. That they would see clearly the will of God. Are you seeking to lead your wives and, and to lead your children in loving the will of God and in trusting the will of God? This means sometimes saying hard things. Ladies, are these the kind of things that we're praying for one another? Are these the kind of things that you're asking one another to pray for you? Children, this is a question you must wrestle with. Have you come before God asking Him to equip you with a knowledge of who He is? Have you asked God, God, I want to know you. I want to trust you. Help me. Give me a heart that knows you and that trusts you and that loves you. thinking about our own evangelistic efforts. Are we praying that God would show us His will and how we share the gospel with those in our lives? But we find here that there is more required of us besides just knowing and being equipped for obedience. It's one thing to know and it's one thing to be equipped with the, the armor that you need to walk in obedience. It's something else completely to actually then walk actually then move forward to go into the fight. And that's where he goes next. That's the second part of the prayer. Look back there. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. 
To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So the big question here then is, how does God work in us? We understand that which is pleasing in His sight, His will revealed in Scripture. You don't have to wonder what is pleasing to God. We have His Word to tell us that. But how does it work in us and through us and move us forward? Well, He starts with our minds. This is where it starts for, for all of us, that we come to know Him and His ways. We find in Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing from the Word of God. So we must hear the Word of God. We must know the Word of God. We must understand the Word of God. And then it moves into our hearts. As we know it, we begin to love it. We begin to desire it. And out of our hearts then flows action. It flows our, our will. We come to follow Him in His ways. But by what means? Perhaps all of this happens, the mind, the heart, and the hands, through our Bibles, right? Or, 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 or through the church, or, or through pastoral counsel, or, or fellowship with, with other Christians, right? Well, no, what does he say there? Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Friends, we are reminded once more in this benediction and closing it out, that Christ is all. This shows us that there is no giving of grace to us from this God of peace except what comes to us by Jesus Christ. Same time, same time it shows us that there is no movement toward true holiness that happens apart from looking unto Jesus as the one in which we follow. That apart from Christ and what He has done and what He is doing and what He will do, apart from seeing Him and knowing Him, there is no true growth in holiness. As we read in Psalm 24, 3-5, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not, does not swear deceitfully, he will receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Friends, the only way we can move to that place is in Jesus Christ. And so this prayer that begins by reflecting on God's character and moves to praying for God's will now closes with God's praise. This doxology of the better shepherd held out to those of us in need, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Friends, this ought to mark our whole prayer life because it ought to mark our hearts. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is what we desire that you would come to know. This is what I would love to talk to you, with you about after the service today. I'll be at the back if you want to talk more about it. It's right here. That you would come to know Jesus as the one to which your heart and your soul and your lips and your life screams glory forever and ever. Amen. And this ends this formal benediction. But the conclusion of the letter then is a fruit. I'll spend just a couple minutes in conclusion looking at it, showing us that this prayer is not just a dream or a best wish, but it's a reality that is already bearing fruit in the life of God's people. He says, closing there, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly, 
You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy. Send you greetings. So friends, as we draw this sermon letter to a close, we are reminded that it was not delivered first as some high-minded textbook for us to understand all the complexities of the Bible. In some ways it is that. It, it is a key, to under, I believe, to understanding the whole Bible. It's one of the reasons that, that Hebrews is my favorite book of the whole Bible. It, it is because I believe Hebrews has a particular key that no other book in the Bible to unlocking the mysteries of God's Word. But this is not primarily how it was delivered. We are reminded here with this personal touch at the end that this was first delivered as a sermon letter to a particular people of God. It brings up again the question that we started with and who wrote the letter? Who wrote this? We're not told. It doesn't begin like most letters do, which lends me to believe, and, and I just fall in line behind guys smarter than me, that, that it first and foremost was not a letter but a sermon. It was a sermon that was delivered and then written down and delivered as a letter after that point. Some believe that this was from Paul himself, the great apostle. You may think that because we note here about Timothy, who was Paul's true son in the faith. We note here Italy, where Paul was longing to go and pressing the gospel further and further out. Some believe that it came from Apollos, who was taught the better way by Priscilla and Aquila. Some think that it's from Luke, who was the great traveling companion of Paul. Now, I don't know if I've said it yet or not, so maybe here at the very end I'm going to tell you my own personal opinion about where Hebrews comes from. My personal opinion is that Luke penned this letter, but that it was taken from a sermon that Paul preached. Okay, so, so both. <laughs> that, that Paul preached a sermon and Luke, in his masterful note-taking, wrote it down so that we would have it here given to us forever and ever as the Word of God. But this is not the important thing to note. This is not the important thing to note here in these final verses. The mention of brothers, of, of Timothy, of leaders and saints and those from Italy highlight one central thing that I want us to see as we close, that the gospel of the crucified and risen Christ is building and sustaining His people. The great hope for these Christians who were struggling to walk in faith who are struggling to look to Jesus, who are facing this danger of turning back. The great thing that he closes with is a great encouragement that the gospel of Jesus Christ in which they had believed was bearing fruit, that it was doing the very thing that Jesus said that it would do. And so they too could keep going. They too could be encouraged. They too could hold fast to the better way of Christ. This must be a reason for us to pause and consider our own trust of him. Friends, as we close, let me ask you a handful of questions then. Are we receiving God's Word, this Word of exhortation and encouragement? Are we trusting and calling on God for those who are in great trial? Are we submitting to our leaders and living together in unity? Are we taking up the call in the home and in the church to proclaim the gospel? And do we have eyes towards the end of the earth? How can we come by such things? Well, there's a benediction within the benediction at the very close, isn't there? Though similar to many others in the New Testament, it's filled with meaning because of the rich truth of grace throughout this sermon letter. He closes with a phrase, Grace be with you all. 
This preacher has shown us that it is grace, this undeserved favor of God, that ordained the redemptive plan in which Christ tasted death for all His brothers. Hebrews 2.9 It is this grace that flows from God's throne of grace to give timely help. 4.16 It is this grace that characterizes the Spirit of God. 10.19 It is this grace that represents the believer's final inheritance and means by which they take hold of it. 12.15 And it strengthens hearts through faith in Christ. Priestly meditation. 13.9 Hebrews shows us God's grace in His chief and pinnacle form. Hebrews holds out for us God's grace in its beautiful, multifaceted diamond of the gospel. Next week, we're going to get back to Hebrews. We're going to look at the entire book in one sermon and review everything that we've learned. But what I want us to see now is that if Hebrews has taught us anything, it is that God's grace is indeed with us because of Jesus, the true Savior, the better than all that has come before Savior. As we come to this table then once again this morning, let us consider freshly the grace extended to us by God, the God of peace, who brought it back to life, Jesus, our better shepherd, the one who gives, who feeds, who sustains and supplies us with all that we need to trust and obey this gracious, gracious God. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your table of grace this morning, the supper that points so clearly and beautifully to Jesus' death, may your grace be imparted to us. May our faith be nourished and grown. We ask this, Lord. Lord, we also pray for those in this room that do not know you, who have not been redeemed, who have not been made new creations by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray and we ask that in this time of reflection you would draw them unto yourself, that they may trust, that they may taste and see that you are indeed a God of peace. We do pray this in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.